John chapter 17, and we'll do a little, uh, you know, refresher course again, like we did last night, or last week. Um, where we've been, where we're going. <laughs> All right, so John 17. These things Jesus spoke, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy Son, that the Son may glorify thee. Even as thou givest him over authority over all mankind, that to all whom thou hast given him, he may give eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I glorify thee on the earth, having accomplished the work which thou gave me to do. And now glorify thou me together with thyself, Father, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. I manifested thy name to the men whom thou givest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou givest them to me, and they have kept thy word. And that brings back to mind what? What section? I manifested thy name. I revealed, right? I revealed not only God, Jesus, Jesus, God. I mean, you reveal Jesus, you're revealing God, like Bill talked about this morning. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. He's the exact representation of his nature, the icon of God. He is. When you look at Jesus, you see God. Which is why when Bill was saying this morning, you know, you want to see God, you want to see him, you want to understand him, read about Jesus. It's pretty simple, really. Pretty simple. If we want to know who God is, God has explained himself. He's that exegesis, right? He's the critical explanation of the text by the authority that wrote the text to begin with. He's coming down and now he's explaining himself to all of us. And there you go. Let me explain myself. Here it is. Verse 7. Now they have come to know that everything that thou hast given me is from thee. For the words which thou gavest me I have given to them, and they received them, and truly understand that I came forth from thee, and they believe that thou didst send me. Send me. So then what is he doing? Speaking, right? Last week we talked about speaking. We're speaking. We speak because Jesus spoke, and we speak like Jesus speaks. We're moved with compassion like Jesus is moved with compassion. If we are like our Heavenly Father, then our words are going to be like Jesus's. And go back to Matthew really quickly, Let's, since we're doing a recap, since we're going to be in Matthew part of the sermon this morning, 419, because before he revealed and before he's speaking, we again had to start in Matthew 419. One of the times he says, come follow me, he says, and, and divide it for me again, ready? My version says, and he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And what? how do we divide that up again? Does anybody remember? Follow me, right? Is what? Relational, yes. Relational. Follow me. Come, get to know me. And I will make you is intentional. Intentional. And that's where we're focusing right now, the intentional part. How did Jesus make them? By, yeah, first by revealing himself to them, and then by speaking to them, and them in turn speaking out, and us speaking. And now, as the text went on in John 17, to talk about, I'm praying for them, not for the world, but for them that you gave me. I'm praying for the disciples. 
Now, I don't think Jesus' prayer, like John says, it didn't stop with just the disciples, did it? He talked about the disciples. He talked about, he talked about himself, the disciples, and he talked about all those who are going to believe on me through their word. So he's, he's even talking about Carl. He's talking about Bill. He's talking about Tom. He's talking about Ethan. He's talking about my wife. He's talking about my son. He's talking about anybody that comes after him. Anybody. Anybody that believes on them through the word. And so when he, when he gets to the part of, of training them, he's, he's revealed himself, he's spoken, and now we're going to talk about prayer. And I know this is a congregation that believes in prayer, right? Amen. We've talked about it many times before. And the psalmist, I think, shares our opinion of prayer. Psalm 66, 18 through 20. I've got it up here if you want to follow along or turn, to your, turn your own Bibles there. Psalm 66, 18 through 20. The psalmist says, psalmist says I believe in prayer. I think it works. He says it a little bit differently than we do. He says, If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But God has surely listened and has heard my prayer. Praise be to God who has not rejected my prayer or withheld his love from me. One of the places where the psalmist says, I know talking to God works. I know prayer works. And I know God wants us to talk to him. I think the psalmist had a clear view of what God is, is, is asking for in communication between us and the Father. The psalmists, many different ones, I think, had a, had a clearer understanding of that than even me. The communication between the Father and me needs to be a constant thing. Amen. And it doesn't, it doesn't need to be a static or a uh, rote thing. I've fallen into the, and I still fall into the category sometimes of, of saying that those rote prayers, you know, before dinner. You could, I can quickly get out the words that I always say. And, yeah, I remember sitting at my, my, my grandfather and grandmother's table to eat uh, dinner when, we, when my mother, would, mother and father would drop us off over there so that they could go do something fun. And we would, we would stay with them. Not that it wasn't fun, but I knew why we were being dropped off because they were going to go have fun. But my grandfather would say the prayer for dinner, and it would be the same thing every time. And I knew it in my head, and I could repeat it in my head before he even said it. And that was one of the fun things to do for me during that time, was to see if I could get it done before he could get it done. It was a rote prayer. And I've fallen into that same trap sometimes with dinners. Because I'm sitting down, I'm hungry, number one, and I'm ready to eat. And all that stands in my way between that food and me is a three-second prayer that I need to get up and make sure it's, it's all been blessed and then I can just dive into uh, feeding my body. But uh, how, how wrong that is to think that way. I shouldn't be thinking that way. I shouldn't be doing that. I shouldn't fall, fall prey to this, this rote prayer because prayer is important. Prayer is sacred. It produces results. And when I'm entering the throne room of God, I need to be a little bit more respectful than just bringing him something that I have repeated over and over again and don't put any thought into. And that's where Jesus gets to this section of his intentional part of the disciples is to teach them. If you look at Luke chapter 11, we're going to bounce back and forth between Luke 11 and Matthew 6. We're going to spend more time in Matthew 6, so if you want to turn over just to Luke 11, just for a minute, because in Luke 11 you see this 
A similar prayer that you find in Matthew 6, but it's introduced a little bit differently. Because in here, in this chapter of this gospel account, the disciples ask Jesus something specifically. Verse 1, he says, And it came about while he was praying in a certain place after he had finished. And notice already what Jesus is already doing. He's what? He's praying. And we've talked about that before. He was known to be a man of prayer, wasn't he? When the disciples were out looking for him, well, he might be praying. You can't find Jesus? He's probably praying. And one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us how to pray. Just as John also taught his disciples. Something that teachers do. And what does Jesus do? He says, okay. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. And then he launches into some lessons on prayer and some illustrations to to help them understand this. What's interesting, I think, is the way that Jesus answers this question in Luke 11 is when the disciples come up and say, teach us how to pray. He doesn't just teach them how to pray. He teaches them a brand new way to pray. He's introducing to them a new part of this relationship that they've been missing. I know you probably know that, and I've talked to people about it. The the very way that Jesus starts off this prayer in Luke 11 and in Matthew 6 by saying, Father, Father, our Father, or Father. That's that's uh, maybe a new concept for these disciples. A A new way of thinking about their communication with the Heavenly Father. A new dynamic to the relationship that they hadn't had before. So not only is Jesus teaching them how, he's answering the first question, how to, how to teach us how to pray. But he also is answering a question that they didn't even ask, that maybe they didn't even know to ask. What This new dimension of prayer, this new avenue, this new, new way to pray, this, pr- this prayer to our Heavenly Father, not, not this God that we can't name, Father, Abba, Father. This, this close relationship that God wants with his people. That he's probably always wanted with his people. Amen. He's always wanted their hearts. He's always wanted to them to be in a relationship with him. And now Jesus is saying, let the exegesis of God explain to you how to talk to your father. Let me critically explain how to address your father. That's what Jesus is intentionally doing here. He's addressing the Father and he's telling them how to address the Father. And one of the things that I want you to get out of this is, since Jesus is intentionally doing this, one of the things that that he's teaching them before we even get to this section here is, is stewardship. Have you ever thought about prayer as stewardship? Prayer is stewardship. I agree that God is the owner of everything, right? Amen. Do you agree with it? Yeah? Amen. Okay. You already answered my question before I asked you. Amen. You agree that God's the owner of everything, right? He gives us these things. He's, he's blessing us. If I honestly believe that, if I honestly believe that God owns everything in my life and I acknowledge his ownership, then when I go to him in prayer, then I am really only being a good steward of what he's giving me. I'm being a good steward 
because I believe God is doing this. I believe He's acting in my personal life here, in my intentionally in my life. And when I go to Him in prayer about this and that and the other, then I am simply being a good steward. I am being a good steward by saying, God, I want your direction. I need your direction in this area. You've blessed me with this. You've blessed me here. Or I am hurting here. I need this, God. I need this help. I think it's a part of stewardship that God says, I want to know if you know. Communicate with me. Let me know that you know that I am blessing you. Let me know that you know that you're, you're, the reason you, you are where you are is because of me. I think it's part of stewardship in this, this prayer. And, and that's one of the ways that I'm going I'm to grow in my communication to God. But one of the other ways that we grow in our communication to God, and you can see in Mark chapter 1, one of the ways that Jesus demonstrates and intentionally demonstrates is in Mark chapter 1, and actually it's, it's in many places, but Mark chapter 1 is where we will take a look at it. You know Mark's gospel, it starts off with a bang and it ends right with a bang. It doesn't, it doesn't really slow down one bit. Mark is a fast-paced gospel. It is moving and moving and moving. All right? In verse... Nine. And it came about in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening, spirit like a dove descending on him, and a voice out of the heavens, Thou art my beloved Son, and thee I am well pleased. And immediately the spirit impelled him to go into the wilderness. And he's in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was in the wilderness with wild beasts, and the angels were ministering to him. After John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. This is, this is moving, isn't it? And saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. He was going along by the Sea of Galilee. He saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. Jesus said to them, follow me. I will make you, I'll make, I'll make you become fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. Going a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, John, his brother. And they were also in the boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them. They left their father Zebedee in the boat and hired the, and the, with the hired servants and went away to follow him. They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and began to teach. And they were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Just there, and just then, excuse me, there in the synagogue was a man filled with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, saying, What do we have to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. Throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. They were all amazed, so that they debated among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And immediately the news about him went out everywhere into the all surrounding district of Galilee. Immediately. How many times has Mark already used the word immediately? Immediately. After they had come out of the synagogue, they came into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever. And immediately they spoke to him about her. He came to her, raised her up, taking her by the hand. The fever left her and she waited on them. And when evening had come, after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. The whole city had gathered at the door. And he healed many who were ill with various diseases, cast out many demons... He was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. Now, all of this has, has been going on in this, this gospel account, and this is fast-paced. They're moving. They're, Jesus is, is 
talking about the kingdom of God coming upon them. He's healing. He's casting out demons. And then in the early morning in verse 35, while it's still dark, he arose, went out, departed to a lonely place, and was praying there. Simon and his companions hunted for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone's looking for you. He said to them, Let's go somewhere else to the towns nearby in order that I may preach there also. For this is what I came out for. Just notice Jesus' priorities here. He is, I've, I've talked about that before, the priorities of Jesus in his prayer life. He is moving in this gospel, especially fast paced, healing, doing miracles, proclaiming the kingdom of God is at hand, coming powerfully here, especially in Mark's gospel. And yet, he still finds time to go out to a lonely place by himself and spend time. Time enough that people came to look for him to figure out where he was because other people are looking for him. Jesus shows us a priority here, the priorities in prayer. There's a priority in talking to the Heavenly Father. There's a priority in my life and in your life that should be there if we are disciples of Jesus. If we're disciples of Christ, then we should be talking to our Savior. We should be talking to God on a regular basis. People should be coming and looking for us. Where, where is this person? Oh, they're probably off praying. Do you have a set time to pray? A lot of you probably do have a set time. Maybe it's when you get up in the morning. Maybe it's before you go to bed at night. Maybe it's another set time during the day. But th there are priorities that we should set in our life. And Jesus, I think, intentionally or shows priorities. And I he, he says it better with his actions than he does with, hey, when, when you ask me how to pray, first off, guys, go find a place by yourself in the morning and go pray. Uh, he, he, he shows them how to do it. And they, and they find him doing it. And they see him doing it. It's, it's one of, again, one of those, you see the sermon rather than hear the sermon thing, right? That, that that picture is worth a thousand words. You see Jesus out there praying. You see him doing what he says he's doing. So number one, if I, if I want to grow in my communication with God, and if I want to grow as a disciple of Christ, then priorities. I've got to have dedicated time with God in prayer, in solitary prayer with God. I've got to have that dedicated time. And one of the reasons I need to do that is, oh, I've slammed words there together. It's not get to, it's get to. So we pray to get to know God. Find direction and lay our requests at his feet. I think that's one of the reasons we need to pray. To get to know God. That intimate time of conversation. I'm getting to know him. And I'm also getting to ask for direction in my life. A part of that stewardship. Asking for direction. How do you want me to, to use my day to day? What opportunities are you going to put in front of me and help me to be ready for those when, you, when I see them? And then lay my requests at his feet because I think he loves to hear my requests. I think he loves to have that conversation with us. I pray to get to know him. It's that same thing that Jesus says there in the garden. Not my will but yours be done because uh, if all we do is come to Jesus and to God with a, is with a laundry list, then we're not really using this prayer effectively. He's not this big Santa Claus in the sky just waiting to have my list delivered to him. I don't know if you if you're like me. Have you have you seen comments on if you're on Facebook? Have you seen comments that are kind of snarky in in terms of I'll be praying for you when disasters happen. Keep your prayers right because they don't do anything. 
I've seen many comments like that. Your prayers are great, but we'd like to have help. Well, that's part of this, this praying is, is prayer is powerful. And I know, that, I know that, at least I think I know, some of the, the reasons they say that is because they don't see, they see Christians saying, I'll pray for you, but we don't do anything about it. Our lip service is there, but our real service is missing. And again, this is how, you know, yesterday's with, with the Christian Relief Fund and things like that, where we have an opportunity to do things, maybe not just here, but joining with other people or, or however we do it, but our prayer needs to be followed up with action. It needs to be followed up with action. When we lay our requests at God's feet, when we ask for direction, we don't just leave it there. We, we get up and we do. It's, it's a movement that we need to keep doing. We need to, we need to grow in our understanding of God's will. Like Jesus says here in the garden, not my will, but yours be done. I think his, his prayer, his direction, he's saying this is not just for outward show. Because he condemns that several times, doesn't he? About just praying on the street corner to be seen by men. No, that's not good. You, you think you're righteous? You think, you, well, you get your reward right now. Here it is. It's not for outward religious show. It's for something much deeper. It's for something, it's for a relationship. Like Jesus says in the garden, not my will, but yours be done. I will do what you are wanting me to do. And Jesus knows, I think through that prayer especially, but you probably know too, that God does not say, I'm going to deliver you from every circumstance. I'm, I'm going to deliver you from everything that happens in your life. He, I don't have a guarantee of that. You don't have a guarantee of that. Jesus didn't have a guarantee of that. When he says, not my will but yours be done, he's saying, I'd really like a different way. That human side of Jesus, the, the sweat, all of that, the angst, all of this stuff that, that he's experiencing, I'd like a different way. But God says, no, this is the way. And Jesus says, not my will but yours be done. God says, I'm not going to deliver you from all circumstances, but I will deliver you through those circumstances. I will be with you. Now, he's going to deliver us through them, not from them. I'm still going to go through them. But who do I have with me? I've got the Heavenly Father on my side. I've got Jesus on my side. I've got His Spirit in me. This is part of the things that I think Jesus is teaching His disciples as He's, as he's showing them prayer in the garden. God will deliver us. So my question for us today is, what difference does Jesus' teaching, Luke 11, Matthew 6, about prayer make in my life today? I want to look at those two prayers, especially Matthew 6, just because I, I, I picked that one to, to look at specifically. But they are very similar. In fact, I put them both up here so that you can kind of see them side by side. Matthew 6 here and Luke 11. I think there, there might be different circumstances that are happening around this time because in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is typically what we call the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus is teaching. And it seems maybe a more general audience here because you don't see the disciples in Matthew 5 say, teach us how to pray, but you see them say that in Luke 11. So perhaps in Luke 11, he's, he's dealing with the disciples specifically. And then here in Matthew 6, he's giving general to anybody who's listening here at, at this sermon this is how you pray. And I don't see anything wrong with that. I mean, I can't imagine Jesus saying to anybody who's asked him or wants to know how to pray, no, that's just for the disciples. 
I think he'd be ready and willing to teach anybody. You want to get down on your knees and talk to the Father? You want to, you want to learn about me and the Father? I'll be happy to teach you. I think that's happening here in Matthew 6. And in Luke 11, I think you're getting a more detailed look into the disciples themselves, getting an inside, maybe a, a closer teaching on the same principle of prayer. And so we're going to go through Matthew 6. So if you want to stay there, that's where we're going to be. Matthew 6 here. What's beautiful about these prayers, like John said this morning, John 17 is really what? The Lord's Prayer. That's, that is the Lord praying. That is the Lord praying. And you see a beautiful prayer of the Lord. And this is typically called the Lord's Prayer, right? But this is a model prayer. This is a, a prayer that Jesus says, hey, you want to learn how to pray. This is a prayer that, that, that they could take and learn from. But this is not the Lord's Prayer, like John says. But notice how concise it is. It's very small, isn't it? It's very small, but it's also very detailed in, in its smallness. It's concise, but it's very, very detailed in its, in its thoughts. The way Jesus taught his disciples to pray is obviously an excellent model, and I think it does deserve our attention. But how do we make this effective for us? Now, for the first part here, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. We're going to break this down twice. Now, the first part, we're going to break it down into a simple breakdown, okay? The simple breakdown of this first part here, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Jesus says, there's praise for the Father. You open up with praise for God. Yeah, adoration. And, and that, following that simple Acts thing, right? Adoration. Yeah. You open up with praise for the Father because everything starts with God. Jesus is always pointing back to the Father. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Praise to the Father. Your kingdom come, your will be done here is submission to the Father in a big picture. His kingdom is coming. His will is going to be done on earth as it is in heaven. God is going to accomplish His will. And Jesus says here, you start off with praise to God and you start off with submission to God. Without submission to God, you're going to have a hard time fulfilling His will. He won't have a hard time fulfilling His will because His will will always be fulfilled. Give, this day, give, this, give us this day our daily bread. Jesus says... He's concerned about your body. He's concerned about daily things for you. This great almighty God is concerned about you personally. I think this is a personal uh, part to the prayer. Jesus says, you disciples, you people that are sitting down listening to me, he cares about you individually. He cares about the nation. He cares about you. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. He also thinks and cares about the soul. The whole purpose for Jesus to come was to seek and save that which was lost. He cares about the body. But he cares about the soul even more. Because the body is going to die. It's going to go away. But the soul is his. And he wants it to come home. He wants a relationship with you. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Protection. And you can add guidance in there too, but protection and guidance. I mean, it's, it's a very simple prayer. But in those things, I think there's a lot to be discovered too. Praise for the Father, submission to the Father, the body, the soul, and protection. Now, we're going to break those down just a little bit more in Jesus' intentional way of praying. 
because I want to look at these sections and sort of expand them just a little bit more. As in the first three, and I'm going to divide the, the first three here. Let me go back just a second. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I want to break that down into three things. And then the last are also three things. So in the first three, you see what is typically called the thou prayers, thou section. And it kind of gives you this eagle eye vision of, of everything. Eagle eye vision of what God is seeing. Eagle eye vision. God is saying, here's this 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 big picture and then he gets down and further down as he goes down in the last three but here we start off with the big picture and when he says hallowed be your name number one god's name is holy because he makes it holy do you need to make god's name holy for him to be holy he's going to be holy no matter what you do isn't he but do I need to make his name holy? Is that Should I be making his name holy? Should I be acting like his name is holy? God's name is absolutely holy. And he makes his name holy. I have nothing to do with that. However, in that first section, if God makes his name holy, listen to 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 12. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that just as you received from us instruction as... How you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. And that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things. Just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. And to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business, work with your own hands, just as we commanded you, so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. I'm required to live a holy life because I am claiming to be one of his offspring. If I am one of God's offspring, that I am required to be holy. Paul says here, this is how you need to walk. And is he asking us to walk any differently than Christ walked? No. He's pointing right back to Jesus again. He's saying, you, you saw this in us. We see this in Jesus. You walk this way. You do this. Now, God's name is holy, and he makes it holy, and he will keep it holy. But if I am, am saying I'm one of his offspring, then I need to live a holy life. A life of sanctification, a life that is constantly growing in Jesus Christ. We make mistakes, right? Apparently not, not many of you, but yeah, we make mistakes. But we're washed by that blood. We don't live in those mistakes anymore. As John says, we're, we're, it is not a, a habit, it's not a lifestyle anymore of sin. It's a lifestyle of Christ. 
It's a lifestyle in the spirit. We make mistakes, but we're washed by that blood. We're sanctified, we're justified, all of these things, and we're moving and we're, we're growing. That sanctification process continuing on and on. God's name is going to be holy. But I am going to need to live a holy life if I say I'm God's. Now, you'll notice something in all of these things that I think there is a partnership in all of these. God says, I'm going to be holy. But if you're going to be a part of me, you need to be holy too. Jesus says, be holy as we need to be holy. But it's a partnership because I can't be holy myself. God makes me holy. Jesus Christ cleanses me. But I have my part to play, don't I? I've got to be the one that says no to this. I've got to be the one that says, I don't live that way anymore. I've got to partner with God in this sanctification process as I grow and become more and more holy, more and more like Jesus Christ every day. God's name is holy because he makes it holy, but I have my part to play in that. Number two, God brought in and continues to add to his kingdom. Hallowed be his name, thy kingdom come, right? He brought in his kingdom, but his kingdom is still coming. We're still adding to. The Lord is still adding to the number. People that are being saved. Amen. So if, if his kingdom is still growing, if we're still out there working for this kingdom, 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 7, he talks about desiring that all people should know, right? And come to the knowledge of the truth. The man Christ Jesus, right? He wants all people to do that. Acts 2, 47 talks about the early church there, that the Lord is adding to their number. That they're preaching, they're teaching, but who's adding? It's the Lord. The Lord gives the increase, doesn't he? God gives the increase. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians. We do this work, we water, we do all this, but God gives the increase. It's God who does this. It's God who does that. That leads us to Matthew 28, 18 through 20. If his kingdom has come and, it, and it's being, being and it's growing, excuse me, as, as we live here, it's growing and, and more people are being added to the kingdom than Matthew 28, 18 through 20, where we've already been, that go. There's my responsibility in this prayer. And my partnership, too, is what does Paul say? We are God's partner. You're God's field. You're working with God. Jesus says, work with me. Let me teach you how to do this. And then you go teach others how to do this. Work with me. We are partnering again with God. God gives the increase and I partner with him to help show people Jesus. All of these things are a partnering. This holy life leads us to doing this. If I don't lead a holy life, then I'm not going to be a good representative of this. People are not going to want to see a Christian or be around a Christian who is a jerk. Who's, who's a guy that says one thing and then does another. Who's a guy that comes on Sunday morning and pretends to have it all together and then goes to work Monday and is the same as everybody else. And then you try to say, oh, you should be a Christian. And they say, well, what's the difference? If I'm not living that holy life, it's going to make it really hard to, do the part, to partner with him in this kingdom work. To partner with him in preaching and teaching everything that Jesus commanded his disciples to teach and us, by extension, to teach. And the third part of that, God fulfills his will. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. God is going to fulfill his will, right? We've already said that. God's always going to fulfill his will. Romans 12, 1 and 2. 
Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. It's reasonable. That's, that's your reasonable service. That's, that's the bare minimum. Just do this. And do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Why? So that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. I have a part to play in this. Therefore, be careful how you walk. Ephesians five fifteen through 21. Be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wow. I don't think Paul knew he was arguing against instrumental music here in this case, because he probably wasn't. We, we use this text to argue against instrumental music, but what he's really saying is he's not arguing instrumental music here. He's not, he's not even thinking about that. He's talking about how you walk. He's talking about understanding what the will of the Lord is here. He's talking about being filled with the Spirit. He's talking about being filled over and over again. And again, even in these two texts, even in the language, there is a, a partnership in this language that God has a part to play. And he's going to play his part. But you have a part to play too. I, get to under, I need to understand what the will of the Lord is. I need to be a part of that will. And what's interesting is God is going to always fulfill his will. Amen. He's going to accomplish his purpose, period. But it's my joy to find out what God has in store for me. Amen. And where I fit into that picture. Because each one of us fits into that picture. Now just stop for a minute and look at those first three. And look at the disciples. The disciples are coming on the scene and Jesus is teaching them how to pray in Luke 11. And he's, and he's teaching a lot of people here how to pray in Matthew 6 saying, pray this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. He's saying, God's name is holy. You better treat it as holy. But you yourselves will be living a holy life. Now did that bleed into the disciples? What did they preach? You need to live a holy life. It bled into the disciples. From that holy life, you go to the continually adding to the kingdom. That God's brought his kingdom in. Acts 2.38, boom. The church is here and people are being added daily. The Lord is adding them. And what does he tell them? And what do they preach? You go preach. You go teach. You do this. But you've got to be living a life that shows Christ, too. You've got to walk as wise men, not as unwise men. You've got, to, you've got to be sanctified. You've got to continue in that sanctification process and not give in to those lusts and those things that you gave in to before because you're a new person. And then this last one here, find out what the will of the Lord is. Be, be filled with the Spirit. Boy, offer your bodies as a sacrifice to Him. God's will is going to be accomplished and God has a purpose for you, what is that purpose? Find out what God wants you to do. Find your place in the kingdom. God is telling, or Jesus is telling each one of these disciples, you've got a place. You've got a part to play. It's up to you to play it. But you have a part to play. And the disciples in turn say, you've got a part to play. But it's up to you to play that part. So there's the first three. The first three of the thou's, the, the over the, the arching 
petitions here, the big ones that give you this eagle-eye view. But now you get down into the more personal ones, like the daily bread. He gives the gift of daily bread. Now in here, look at Proverbs 3, 7 through 9. He says, two things I ask of you. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep deception and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion, that I may not be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or that I may not be in want and steal and profane the name of God, my God. God keeping us in good health and good portion, keeping, or keeping, taking care of us. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, 6-13, Paul says, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life, not according to the tradition which you have received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you, so that you would follow our example. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he's not to eat. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, acting like busybodies. As such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion, eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. Mm, a partnership again. I think God is saying, I will take care of you. Give us this day our daily bread. I believe that you will take care of me, God. I know you'll take care of me. And we as his creation are actively doing the same. We are working. We are feeding our family. We are working. We are out there doing what we need to do, knowing that God is doing what he needs to do, this partnership together, recognizing where the good gifts are coming from, that God is is the ultimate giver of all that is good. It's that same thing that Jesus taught his disciples. Who gives good gifts? The Father. I'm going to give you good gifts. But at the same time here, when we, when we learn how to, how to take care of ourselves and how we learn how to support ourselves and God is supporting us, then we can turn around and support others, can't we? And help others. Like in Ephesians 4, when Paul is saying, to the one who steals, steal no longer, Right? But he doesn't stop at just steal no longer. What else does he say? Work with your hands and then, yeah, so you may help others. God doesn't want us just to get by. He wants us to help others along the way. I, I, I'm in a position to help. I need to help. I'm in a position to give help. Give help. This partnership here with the daily bread, God is going to take care of you. Jesus says, I will take care of you. I will take care of my disciples. I took care of them. You gave them to me. I took care of them. And now I'm sending them out. The disciples say the same thing. And now we say the same thing. Number five, God forgives. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Ephesians 4.32, speaking of Ephesians, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. Those just as statements, again, that are very, very deep. Forgiving people like God forgave me. Bearing with one another, Colossians 3.13, and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Man, that puts a lot of, uh, a lot of weight on forgiveness. 
that I need to forgive you just like God forgave me. And God forgave me for quite a bit. And I didn't deserve it one bit. So how do I turn around and do that to you? Matthew 18. I want to read this one to you as well. Matthew 18, 21 through 35. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. And he was probably really hoping that Jesus said, no, six would do. Yeah, six is close enough. If he hasn't gotten it by the sixth time, then just forget it. Jesus says to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but to 70 times seven. Really, it's... How many times? How many times is it going to take? It's an ongoing thing. Jesus says, you need to be forgiving, Peter. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. The Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But the slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. He seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Do you ever do that to somebody? Maybe it's done to you. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported it to the Lord, to their Lord, all that had happened. Summoning him, the Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? As his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly father will also do the same to you. If each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Mm. Forgiveness. Forgive us this day our day or forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. I must be a forgiving person. Another lesson that the disciples are learning in this prayer is that you're going to be wronged. But when you're wronged, what do you do? You forgive. You wronged God. And what did he do? He forgave. It's, it's always been an interesting thing. Do you forgive when they ask? Do you forgive before they ask? How does that happen? And I'd like, to, I'd like to think I could forgive before they even ask. And that asking is a great thing to happen, but if you don't ask me, I'm going to still forgive you. Um, I don't know if... Maybe, maybe, maybe you have a different opinion on that, but maybe we should get to the point where we can forgive... Even if you never come and say, I'm sorry. And, and be, be able to say, I'm going to forgive them. They don't deserve it. They haven't even asked for it, but I'm going to forgive them anyway. I'm going to let that go. I'm not going to hold it against them. It's not going to tear me up inside. If they ever come and ask, great. But I'm going to say, you're forgiven. Jesus forgave us while we were yet sinners. So... I don't know. Sometimes I wonder about that and the practical application of forgiving somebody before they even ask. It's great when they ask, but perhaps we should be people who say, 
Yeah, I've forgiven you already. I'm glad you came, but I've forgiven you already. God forgave me. I need to be a forgiver. And number six, God guides me from evil. He guides me and he protects me from evil. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 10, 6-13, a commonly used scripture when we're talking about temptation, when we're talking about things that are, that are wrong here. Paul says, now these things happen as an example for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Now that craving there is that heart. They have their heart set on evil things. Their heart is, is with evil, not with God. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore let him who stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but as such as is common to man, and God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. God is going to help us in our temptation. Romans eight twelve through 17. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, what? You must die. But if, the, if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not yet received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. But you have received a spirit of adoption as, by, as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> In this last section, talking about our protection and guiding us from evil, in, in that first Corinthians verse, he's talking about sin. He's not talking about just hard things that come into our lives. He's talking about sin. He's talking about us being led into sin. And God is going to provide a way of escape. And he gives some examples of that, the bronze serpent. He gives some examples of God providing a way of escape here. But the people had to look for that way of escape, had to take the opportunity to escape that. This is talking about sin, not just a hard day. Because God is going to, God is going to put hard things on us. He's going to discipline us. He's going, to, he's going to allow us to go through things. But how does he allow us to go through things with him? With his help, with his, with his spirit, with Jesus. So this partnership here, God's guidance, but we have to look for it. And we have to want to be led by him. That's the same thing that the disciples went through. They had God's guidance. They had Jesus' guidance. But they had to want that. They had to look for it. You can look at the example of Judas, who didn't want God's guidance. Who had it set in his heart what he wanted. And ended up in the wrong spot. And you see Peter, who makes a drastic mistake, but when it, it's Peter's eyes and Jesus' eyes meet, Peter recognizes what happened, and his heart breaks. And he realizes what he's done, and Jesus restores him back, leads him back. This partnership, as, as we look at the example here of pray in this way, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. 
Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This, this small, concise, but detailed prayer that Jesus taught the disciples is this life of sanctification, this process of learning how to live, this process of learning how to, how to reveal Jesus, how to speak Jesus, and how to pray, and how to keep in constant communication with our Heavenly Father, understanding that it's His will is going to be done, that we're going to be used in His will, but also that He's going to guide us, that He's going to protect us, that He's going to provide for us, and that we turn around and we show them, anyone that we come in contact with, this partnership with the Father. And for that, for that reason, in this week, I want you to do this for me. I want you to partner with Jesus, partner with God, partner with the Spirit, all of these things in prayer this week. And in each one of those sections, I want you to partner and talk to Him about holiness. First, I want you to talk to Him about His holiness and then your holiness. Second thing, I want you to talk to Him about His kingdom and your work into it. His will. And then God's will for you. I want you to talk to him about his daily care of you. And then in your daily care. And in what you do on a daily basis. I want you to talk to him about his forgiveness of you. And then in turn talk about your forgiveness of others. I want you to talk to him about his protection and guidance. And then I want you to look in your life for examples of that protection and guidance. And... Maybe you don't want to do all of these. Maybe, maybe you've got something in your life. Or maybe you're struggling with holiness. Maybe you're struggling with your place in the kingdom. Maybe you're struggling with God's taking care of you on a daily basis and you're, and you're hurting. Maybe you need to concentrate your communication in one of these areas. But if you don't, try all of these areas. One day a week, take Monday, holiness. Tuesday, His will. And just think about, pray about God's holiness. Your holiness. God's will and your will. How does your will line up with him? How, does he use, how is he using you in his kingdom? All of these things. Because I think Jesus modeled this stuff for his disciples. We see him many, many times. I think in the book of John you can see him over 33 times teaching his disciples little bits of prayer. He teaches them all about prayer. He teaches them how to pray. And we take that small, concise, detailed prayer and we can turn it around and say... How does that prayer affect me today? How does my communication with God affect me as a disciple of Jesus today? How do I fit into his kingdom? How am I accomplishing his will? How am I thankful for his daily blessings? And how am I blessing others with those things that he's blessed me with? We've got a lot of things to consider in this small little prayer. So this week, maybe take Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday and and go through this prayer. And on a daily basis, like I've been doing, I'll send you stuff on Facebook and an email to give you some extra questions and extra things to think about. Keep up that communication. I'm still getting things back from people. It's really great to hear some of your thoughts on, on those questions and other things as we explore what it means to be a disciple as Jesus discipled. This week, concentrate on his prayer. Read those prayers. Ask him about those prayers. Ask him about holiness. Ask him about your, his will, your will. Ask him about his daily care for you. And don't forget to turn around and do that to others. Show them a disciple who prays, a disciple who trusts, a disciple who cares with that constant communication that you will have with the Father. Try it this week. See if your life doesn't change a little bit as you sit and dedicate some time to Jesus, to God, and to the Spirit in prayer. Do that this week as we stand and as we sing.